Welcome to Channel Journeys, the podcast for channel professionals that will enable and inspire you to create your best channel journey ever. Meet and learn from channel experts who share authentic stories of their channel victories, defeats, and lessons learned along the way. Here's your host, Rob Speed, a channel chief on a never-ending quest for channel knowledge and adventure. Hello, Channel Pros. Welcome to Episode 79 of Channel Journeys. I'm your host and Channel Chief, Rob Spee. Thanks for listening. All right, here we are, final month of the year, only 10 days till Christmas. Hope you've all been good to your channel partners so Santa doesn't put you on his naughty list. And I hope you're sharing Channel Journeys with your channel friends and leaving a rating and review if you enjoy the show. I would really appreciate that. A big shout out and thank you to the sponsor of Channel Journeys, Allbound makers of a world-leading partner portal. One of the things that Allbound customers have shared with me is that it is super fast and super easy to get set up. Allbound gives you an easy way to collaborate with your partners on co-marketing and co-selling. You can automate the deal registration process, and they have best-in-class reviews for automating the training of your partners and for engaging partners in all aspects of their lifecycle with you. Check them out at allbound.com. All right, well, today's guest hardly needs an introduction. Unless you've been sleeping through the last few years, I'm sure you've heard of this expert on all things channel and channel futures. Of course, I'm talking about my channel friend, Jay McBain, Forrester's analyst for channel partnerships and ecosystems. And Jay is back to the podcast to share his vision of where the IT industry and particularly the IT channel, where it is headed. As always, it's very engaging and fun and thought provoking conversation with Jay. Are you ready for Jay's top 10 channel predictions? Let's go. Hey, Jay, good afternoon, and welcome back to the Channel Journeys podcast. Thank you so much for having me back. Well, it's my pleasure. It's been a while. I don't know if it's maybe been a year since you've been on the show, but we did a, an end-of-year show last year, and it's that holiday season time again, so what a quick year. It's the most wonderful time of the year. <laughs> Let's hope so. Let's hope so. It sure should be if we uh, if we think outside the box. So end of year, you always like to do your kind of channel predictions, the future of the channel. Really enjoyed watching the video of a presentation you gave recently. Was that a Channel Pro? I can't remember where you were when you gave that uh, Future of IT presentation. It was at Channel Partners Expo in Vegas. And uh, for not traveling for, I don't know, 18 or 19 months, getting in front of 5,000 people uh, for a keynote is a little bit of relearning uh, basic skills again, how to ride a bike again. Wow. Was that your first live presentation coming back? I had a couple of, uh, I did a, an event in Miami and then I did, which is a local drive for me from here. And then I flew to Dallas to do a smaller room partner event, you know, maybe with 50, 60 people in the room. Yeah. And then I flew right into the, the 5,000. So it was kind of like that first, uh, when you're wired up with proper AV and you've got the, you know, those 200 foot screens behind you and things like, that's on a new level. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we were joking. I went out to Channel Focus, which I think took place the same week. And everyone was joking about just packing was tough. We've all forgotten how to pack for a trip. That's right. You get, well, I, you know, I went into my uh, toiletry bag and you know everything from your toothpaste to your hair gel to your deodorant, everything that was in there that you use like every week normally uh, had been sitting there for 18 months. So every, I had to reorder you know, things from Amazon so I could like get new toiletries going again. So that was the biggest change for me. That's why you have six boxes on your doorstep every day. That's probably why. Yeah, It's all that hair product. 
you know, that's a, you got to keep this gelmet intact. <laughs> well, really interested in diving into these topics uh, that you covered in that presentation. And I'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes so everyone can see it if they haven't. But diving into your predictions for the channel, and these are a lot of things that you've been talking about, but there are some new things on the list too that I found very interesting. So why don't we just jump into it and there we can talk into the, the themes of where we're headed as a channel and the impacts that it has on channel leaders that are listening to this show. So number 10 on your list, you did the, the Letterman top 10. So we'll go through there. Number 10 was tech buying is changing. So is the psychology behavior and the journey of the buyer. That's something we've been talking about quite a bit. Is there even a further progression on that front? Yeah, it's something we've been talking about for years. We talked about it on our last podcast, but the pandemic, you know, put a lot of these things uh, and amplified or put them on steroids. So when you think about your digital or digital only journey in the past, you know, that time you bought a car and you jump around from, you know, videos to social media to talking to your neighbor and going to configure the car, get the invoice price, get the back end rebates. By the time you hit the dealership floor, you are smarter than that salesperson. You know exactly within $100 what the negotiation is going to end up being. Like It's to the point that I'd pay $100 more just to get the car delivered. And, and just I mean, you're, you're so deep in knowledge. But this, we did a big piece of research at Forrester. And you know I'll save you a thousand pages of reading. The future business buyer, you know somebody buying software, somebody buying hardware, somebody buying services is going to look a lot like a consumer. So those 28 on average moments that from the point where you thought you needed a car to that point where you signed the deal and walked on that dealership floor, those 28 moments are coming quickly into our world. And what's interesting is, you know, when I ask uh, vendors every day, I ask distributors, I ask partners to walk me through what they think the moments are, because there's 35 million kinds of customer. So, you know, if you're that mid-sized clinic in upstate New York, what are those moments? Does the Chamber of Commerce have a moment? Does that local blog, does that local podcast, you know, where's that particular customer jumping around for 28 moments before reaching, you know, that point of vendor selection? And the better understanding there, it's now a partnership play. You know, I need to know the owners of these moments, much like BMW and Toyota need to know the owners of those moments. They have to get closer to Car and Driver and Edmunds and all these different sites so that they can see, you know, these moments and understand and maybe get endorsed, you know, at the right time during your cycle uh, to, to earn that. Do you think that the vendors that you're talking to, do you think they know and understand what those moments are? Well, they don't. And this would have been over in their marketing department in the past is let's do our customer personas. Yeah. Let's do our ideal customer profile. Let's do, and let's start to look at these, you know, different marketing intent type of stuff early in the journey. And that was, you know, all fine and good, but it never really focused on what you need to focus on is having that owner of the moment or that influencer inside that moment. Right. Saying something nice about you, endorsing you in some way, or at least being able to see the data you know, be able to earn that. And that's what we'll talk about next. But it's getting almost obsessed over these early moments. And then, you know, in these new models and everything else, there's moments all across the map. The moments never end now. So it's just becoming with channel professionals. It's about understanding these moments that we've never been asked to do before. 
Sounds like a new podcast, Channel Moments. Channel Moments along the journey. <laughs> that would be my next uh, phase. So the next one I found fascinating, and I hadn't even heard this, the end of the cookie. Yes, forever, since 1995, we've all been the product on the internet. And, and everybody knows this. You know, you get free access to social media, you get free access to email and all these things that you get. You know, nothing's free. And they've been harvesting your private personal data since day one. And, and we know what's happening with, you know, the different devices around our house listening to us. And, you know, that whole economy there is now pretty much common knowledge. And so they finally hit the point where governments are getting involved. And you're seeing, you know, these companies almost every day today is Instagram in front of Congress, you know, talking about the, the danger of this and this business model of harvesting your private data and selling it for profit. You know, we're seeing the end of dates and it's legal work, it's legislation, it's regulation. There's a bunch of governance that's coming. So these companies are forced ahead of that, you know, to come out uh, earlier and announce really is the end of cookies, end of targeting, end of tracing, end of this whole idea of you being the product on the internet. So the really simple thing for us in the end of cookies is that we had MarTech, marketing technology. There's 8,000 companies on the MarTech stack. Like about half of them would be harvesting these huge mountains of data and, and trying to give back to those car companies your 28 moments. Right. So to learn so much more about you before you jumped on that dealership floor and how they could better you know, organize that. Well, that's all going away. All those tools get neutered now that there's no mountain of data. So unless they go build partnerships in those 28 moments and do a couple of things, one is attribute those actions because those moments don't turn into sales. The person that wrote that blog or recorded that video isn't taking the money for that car. Right. So you can't directly measure the transaction back to the moment. So now there's a whole new technology stack category called, you know, ecosystem attribution. So you got to get better at that. And that's a marketing skill that's, again, coming into the, the channel world. It's also a data sharing is another layer. So there's companies now that have these data escrow services that I can ask that owner of that moment, who I, I now am a partner with, I can get them to share second party data of who's clicking. And so I can start to build at least some visibility. You'll, you'll not ever get to all 28 moments, but every single moment that I can capture is more scientific in terms of what leads to a purchase. Yeah. And so at the end of cookie is really the start of ecosystem partnerships to really um, supplant what was happening in the past, you know, given those old models. Jay, I really hope it is the end of that super annoying pop-up every time you go to a new website that forces you to accept their cookies. We're hoping that that's the case. And by the way, in some cases, like there are some buyers, including me, uh, who don't mind it. I don't want, you know, to go on Facebook and see diaper ads. If I'm looking for a car, I don't mind that there's 365 kinds of cars across 62 different companies who make cars that are competing for my attention because that's my mind at this moment. Yeah. I would like better tools, you know, to be able to turn that on and off. I'd, I'd like better tools to be able to hone it in. If I'm looking for a SUV, for example, I can start shutting down, you know, 200 sedans. But, you know, if, if you give the empowerment to the buyer, in many cases, that's what they're asking for. Yeah. So just serve me. I know, I know real estate on the screen, the pixels, uh, you know, all come at a premium. 
But if, if this could actually be helpful to you and you know that your personal data isn't being you know, sold in different places, there's something there. And it, again, comes back to our world, which is pretty exciting. Yeah. All right. Number eight, 76% of the CEOs think their current business model will be unrecognizable. And this may tie directly into number seven, which is the world is shifting to the subscription and consumption models. Are these two totally interrelated? Yeah, it's almost the one-two punch again, but there's more than just subscription and consumption. So whether you're a public company, whether you're a private company, and it doesn't matter which of the 27 industries you're in, you talked as you know CEOs of pharmaceutical companies, CEOs of banks and manufacturing companies, CEOs of technology companies, every CEO, 76% of them you know, think that how they go to business today, how they go to market is going to change pretty radically in the next five years. And then guess what? The pandemic hits, forces them all into curbside service, forces everybody into e-commerce and marketplaces. And, you know, now we've got over 30% of the U.S. economy going via marketplace. Yeah. So here's a one of those trends we were watching before the pandemic that just absolutely got amplified. And so when you start to think about it, if I'm a partner, every company that I go and knock on the front door is probably going through this end of industry, end of company type of thinking. So do you have any sense of what percentage of software companies, ISVs, have already moved to the subscription model? Are you guys tracking that at Forrester? Yes. So we're tracking close to 175,000 SaaS companies today, pure subscription. What's more interesting in the last year is watching the entire client server era in subscription. You know, when uh, Cisco announces 100% all in, when 30 days later, Michael Dell, you know, takes $94 billion of seven Dell technologies and announces 100% all in. When you see IBM jettison their services group to Kindrel yeah. and go all in Red Hat, all in Watson, all in subscription. When you see, you know, a couple of weeks ago, Lenovo did the same. HPE's been on this journey for years with GreenLake. They're at the point in a couple of months where that million dollar HPE server is now $9,000 a month forever. So this is now the world we live in. This is creating all kinds of you know shifts uh, in models, but subscription consumption is one thing, but during the pandemic, we saw product-led growth. Zoom, for example, doesn't have a sales force. They don't have a marketing team and they don't have a channel. Even though they've recruited 120,000 partners, none of them are resellers because the product sells itself at the 40 minute mark, it threatens to hang up and you type in your credit card, you know, pretty quickly. But that's a good example where Slack was sold into Salesforce for 27.7 billion. It is a product led growth company. If you read last week's big year end summary by OpenView or Bessemer and some of the big private equity, the McKinsey's and the Bain's and others, they're all talking about the future of SaaS is product led. Don't be hiring these big sales forces and marketing teams and don't be, you know, out recruiting resellers have your product sell itself, land and expand. And that's the most valuable companies today. And that's a new business model. So when you talk about 76% of CEOs, it could be product-led growth. It could be value-based pricing. It could be usage-based pricing. It could be going into these marketplace models. And the whole future of how money changes hands in every single industry is radically shifting before us. And you know this is one of those 10-year trends that it's going to shift our entire industry back to a third, a third, a third, where today technology, 64% of it is resold. By the end of the decade, that's going to be about a third. A third resold. And then you mentioned a third will go via marketplace? Marketplace and a third direct. There's a lot of direct to consumer consumption models that, that sit in here as well. So 
That's how the money changes hands differently in the future. But 90% of that opportunity, which will be 7 trillion by the end of the decade, 90% of it will be partner assisted. So we've been talking for years about these non-transacting partners and shadow channels. We called them different things on every previous podcast. But the fact of the matter is now that channel leaders need to disconnect the word channel, which has been synonymous with transactional resale type channels. It's a route to market. The channel or the ecosystem, which is maybe a better term for it, is really a go-to-market initiative. It's a broader company-wide initiative that we can't go it alone. Yeah. Well, it's really interesting, Jay. We're going through this transformation at Beyond Trust too. So we made the announcement that January 1st, we're going 100% subscription. So we're following the trend. We have a very traditional channel, the old classic channel. It's a transactional channel. And I was brought on board to help transform that and, and bring it into this you know, modern partner ecosystem. And we're having a lot of conversation about what is the role of the channel. And I think when we have that conversation, they're thinking channel, like you said, they're thinking reseller, they're thinking transactional. I almost wonder, do we need to change the name of channel chief? Is it now ecosystem chief? You know, something different to, to get this new mindset. Yeah. When you go and present to your executives, I would say that, you know, there's a few things, you know, I think channel is channel ecosystem. And when you talk about the channel, it's okay to talk about that transactional channel because the program you have in place, those great, you know, VARs and resellers and others that you've recruited, they're fantastic. And you're going to continue to grow that piece of the business. Yeah. Because here's the deal. You know, if I had one slide to put in front of an executive team, it would be this. We need to get customers to the dance. There's 28 moments. We need to know who those owners, we need a program to support those owners. We need to attribute what they do so we can stack rank where we should be investing. We need to share data with them at scale. We need to get much better at automation and and things in that mode because the CMO, a lot of their tools and their toolkit is drying up right now. And the channel ecosystem is going to replace that. Well, guess what? Now that we're a hundred percent subscription, that transaction that we've always been after is the first 30 days with the customer. Yeah. Now, which channel is driving adoption of beyond trust? Which channel is driving uh, integrations and stickiness to keep that renewal and retention rate up? Which channel is doing upsell and cross sell of our broader portfolio and any new innovation? Who's enriching the contract every 30 days? So there's a whole set of a hundred thousand plus channel partners that are not in your program today that actually add value later in the journey and keep that a customer for life. So here's the three parts of the chart. We need to get the customers to the dance. We need to get them on the dance floor, which is the first 30 days. And then we need to keep them dancing all night long. Those are the three parts. And then the other couple of parts on this chart as well is we need to build out a set of technology alliances. You know, we need a good one-two punch conversation with Microsoft and Google and AWS and Salesforce and other big platform players better together. We need to have a, you know, very strong uh, one-two punch with the big global system integrators with Accenture and Deloitte and Capgemini and KPMG and PwC all the way down the list of 20. So the set of alliances that overarch all of those three parts of the customer journey are critical. And then finally, we need to be our own platform. We need to build DevOps and build type skills. We need other companies to be innovating on our platform, driving that last mile for customers. There's 35 million permutations to where our product could go. And there are millions of developers out there that are ready to start up companies to go 
pave that last mile is what channels have always done. So there's five elements to what they might be thinking as a channel in a singular linear way. Yeah. Well, great. You just crafted a ELT 2022 channel pitch for the channel chiefs, channel ecosystem chiefs out there. So this next prediction, I think ties right into that. So let's see. Um, number, number six was the embedded white label future replaces the skew. So I think this gets into those alliance partners, OEMs, that section of the channel. I think that was slide four that you mentioned that, that you need to talk about. Yeah. So, you know, I spent a long time in my career, 17 years working at IBM. So I use that as a, a cautionary tale uh, in that this is a company that, that I work for that for 28 straight years, including the current year, has won the patent race. And most years, it's not even close. You know, like they're three times more patents than Samsung, you know, last year. So you would think, you know, 28 years in a row, thinking about all emerging tech from IoT and AI and automation and blockchain and quantum computing and AR, VR, think about drones and self-driving cars. It doesn't matter where you're looking in the future, which is today's tech. You know, IBM probably holds the patent. And for 10 straight years, they've dropped revenue every straight, every single quarter. So how do you take 28 years of innovation and not monetize? Well, you've got a distribution-led transactional channel supported by a sales force that knows how to sell product SKUs. Where 10 years ago, if IBM would have, what they ended up doing is announcing something like Watson in AI. They go and, you know, beat Jeopardy. Watson had beat Gary Kasparov at chess, you know, in the mid nineties. I mean, there's this great lore around Watson and um, they took it to market to cure cancer. They took it to, you know, predict nuclear explosions to predict the weather. They bought the weather channel at the time. Right. And then they put it out and said, hey, go buy the SKU. It's in distribution. Want to cure cancer as a hospital? Go buy the SKU. And, you know, a year ago or so, actually not even quite, the New York Times did a big expose on that promise. And a lot of hospitals are actually pushing it out, not because it's not helpful, but because it didn't fulfill its promise. And, you know, it perhaps delayed some of the curing of cancer because too much was oversold or overpromised. So I was saying like 10 years ago, if they would have taken that technology and go and embed that in Salesforce, and then Salesforce wouldn't have had to build Einstein. So we'd have a little logo, you know, like an Intel logo, Watson inside when you fire up Salesforce, a little logo on your Tesla, you know, Watson inside, a logo on your toothbrush. That's the embedded culture of AI isn't a product. Neither is IoT, neither is 5G, none of those emerging tech that I just listed off, none of them are products. They're all layers of a solution that won't sit on their own as a skew. So you need to spend more time selling to, through, and with others than you do to sell customers. It's a different motion, different kind of sales team, and it's understanding the world in a different way. It's a white-labeled world. It's an embedded world. Jay, I'm wondering, in that white-labeled world, should vendors, ISVs, be so maniacal about wanting to know who the end customer is, or should we just kind of release that? You've got a partner who's embedded or doing white labeling of your solution. Just let them go out and sell and not be so concerned about identifying every single end user. Well, I think you want to know who the end user is because you want to make your product better. If you find out that you know 50% of mid-sized clinics you know, across the United States has bought your product through others you're doing something special for that very particular market. And there's 297 sub-industries. There's millions of markets. So I kind of want to know where I'm succeeding so that I'm not spraying with my product. I can run adjacent to that. Maybe I'll move into small hospitals or big dentist offices next, 
I'm not going to go out and do mid-sized banks at this point. You know, so that's the data sharing that I was talking about. It's not that I want to download their CRM so a bunch of my direct salespeople can go and call that customer. You know, I don't need that level of information, but I need them to be protected in my partner program that they understand when they upload that data that it's protected. It's it's double blind. It's escrow type of data sharing. But the reason they're sharing it is for opportunities. When that new mid-sized clinic comes across your website, you can share the data back to them. You can connect dots. You can leverage network effects. You can co-innovate together. You can build value together, you know, better together than, than alone. That's the encouragement of why to share data. It's not so somebody can go and, you know, grab that list and go sell it direct. Right, right. The classic fear. All right. So shifting back to marketplaces, your number five prediction, marketplaces accelerate the decline in resale. And we talked a little bit about this. You see resale going from about two thirds down to one third. Why will it even go there? Why not just go down to zero? Why do you think resale will continue to have a world, you know, by the end of the decade? Yeah, something I've learned um, carefully as, as an analyst is never to predict doom and gloom, especially when you're predicting that entrepreneurs who have been successful for 40 years are somehow not going to be successful, you know, as, as the, the crank turns. So, you know, unless you're selling magazines and you deal with platitudes uh, or you deal with like the death of type of covers, you got to be nuanced because when I talked about those 35 million customers and then you can dig in deeper and look at their psychology, their behavior, you got to understand that people just like doing things in a certain way. Car dealerships are never going away because there's a certain portion of the market prefers that pain and suffering than not. But, you know, yes, demographically, it can be different by age. It can be different by geo. It can be different by the line of business or the type of buyer. It can be done. It'd be different so many different ways. But you've got to start with your market target addressable market size and work backwards. And if again, if I'm doing an executive presentation, this is another chart, is that every company has a TAM with their current product base. And you've got to work backwards from how your customers want to procure and provision that subscription. Yes, digital marketplaces is going to grow. We buy Netflix from a digital subscription. We don't buy it from the cable guy in the white van. It makes a lot of sense when you're embedding, white labeling, building a seven layer, which is the average cloud deal today. When you're building a seven layer cake that I don't want somebody in their white van to go chase down seven companies to get special pricing from seven companies and to produce that on a single bill. And then all of a sudden you have to add a user and you rinse and repeat. It takes six months to go put that together. I want to go provision and procure in the same place. If I want to add a user, take away a user. If I want to add a piece of technology like AI, it's all there. All the companies, the 20 companies that are going to win 80% of the opportunity, they're already running on enterprise credits. There's too many permutations with you know, what is going to be a million software companies, a million emerging tech companies, millions of partners, and 35 million customer scenarios. You, know, you start multiplying that together on your calculator, you get an error pretty quickly because there's nobody that should be out as product SKU salespeople trying to layer in seven SKUs that you're going to buy. This is the embedded marketplace digital transaction that you're layering in and you're building your own solution. And you might be a unicorn. You're the only person to put together that permutation or, or combination of things to solve your problem. How to stay around, how to stay important, how to stay relevant. So I think that's going to continue. There's one nuance that I, I want to share because right now, businesses and governments around the world spend three and a half trillion with a T on technology last year. 
we're in an industry this decade that's doubling in size. So at the end of the decade, we'll be at seven trillion. So when I said that, you know, this reseller part of it, which today is $2.2 trillion, it's, you know, two thirds of it, that just doesn't grow. But it really doesn't shrink either. Two trillion, 2.2 trillion on seven represents one third. But it's not like the people that are putting through that money. It's not like the buyers today that are just going to shift, you know, student body right here. It's just the fact that in that doubling of this industry, that wealth is going to go into marketplaces and more direct than we have today. But there's no one going out of business who's a reseller. It's just if they want to grow where the industry is growing, if they want to partner with those vendors and, and, and other players that are growing at double or triple digits, they've just got to make sure that they unhook themselves from the transaction and start to look at other places to make money. Yeah. Let's jump. Um, your number four is around marketplace taxation and it's being lowered. Microsoft and Google lowered theirs to 3%. But I'm going to jump past that one to your next prediction, which is around the distributor. Because we've been talking about the channel, this distribution, the disties, the VADs. They've been part of this channel equation for many, many years. And you, But you say distributor disruption continues. That's your number three prediction. Let's dive into that a little bit deeper. Yeah. So I wrote a piece earlier this year that got me a couple of cease and desist letters uh, it went probably the most viral. I think over a million people read it. Um, and I asked a simple question. Are distributors the future of distribution? And we know that there's an influx of, you know, used to be called master agents, now tech, tech solutions brokers. There's new uh, cloud uh, distributors that don't have any legacy debt. They, they distribute bits, not atoms. No supply chain, no warehouses, no credit capital facilities. So, you know, they get to come out fresh. And, and a bit more aggressive. So there's a lot of disruption. Right after I, I wrote this and I predicted, you know, the TD cynics coming together, which happened weeks later. Uh, the end result, though, is a lot of the things we've talked about. You know, subscription consumption, when that big million dollar deal turns into $9,000 a month, when it turns into a digital subscription, you know, supported by a marketplace, when, you know, resell itself doesn't really budge a lot. Um, a lot of things are happening, especially as these companies have all been taken private. Their private equity is looking to get out of this thing in five to seven years with some nice exit. I listed off 10 things there that present headwinds to distributors. But in the end, it's back to that entrepreneur thing. These are smart people. Uh, the rebuttal that somebody wrote said that, hey, for 40 years, people have been promising the end of distribution. It's never come. So they end up figuring out a way. And, and that's probably the title here. But I left them with kind of two things. That, that I see is the successful distributors. One is you have to become a platform for distribution. So when you talk about being a platform as a SaaS company and having other people develop on top of you, uh, having all of these digital tools like marketplaces, like some of them have invested in and stuff, there's so many layers to a platform that are different skills. It's different technology. It's going to need significant private equity money you know, to go and make these moves, but they're very capable. They have capable executive teams that can go make these moves and be a very important orchestrator, which we're going to talk about later in this economy. The second thing they've got to do is come out of hiding. The one thing that's protected them for 40 years is they could hide behind the VAR or the MSP. And my kids who are in law school, the older kids, don't know who Ingram, Tech Data, Cynics, Arrow, you know, they don't know who ScanSource is or Blue Star or DNH. I mean, none of these names ring a bell. And the first few of them are all Fortune you know, 500 companies, big, big 50, 60 billion dollar companies. That's a problem. You know, having never run a Super Bowl ad, have never come out of hiding. There's no Intel inside sticker with Ingram or Tech Day. This has got to change. In an ecosystem, nobody hides. 
when a customer's out looking at the stars, you know, look at all this celestial bodies and figuring out what's seven layers of the stack and what the connective tissue and the icing on the cake is, they have to be out there in front of the customer piecing together their value, which is a huge amount of value, by the way. Products need to ship. And there's a lot of things that have to come together, uh, but they can't do that in hiding anymore. And that's going to be the biggest shift that um, I'm not sure some of them are going to be able to get over. I, I remember when Arrow approached me for a position years ago, I'd never heard of them before. And I'd been in the channel for years. Yeah. Just a, I was at IBM, so I knew Arrow very, very well. And Avnet, I mean, they were two of our biggest AS400 and RS6000 distributors at the time. <laughs> so when you, you, when you mentioned the distributor as a platform, what are you describing? Is that a marketplace? What do you, what do you see there? All of the above. I, I see it as, you know, an orchestrator of a lot of things. Like right now they can handle thousands of things on their line card and they handle, you know, 75,000 partners. It's all very manual, human based. What I'm talking about in the future with all these millions of this and millions of that, you know, is, is a point of automation and AI. So much of this orchestration is going to be non-human based. It's going to be bots, you know, running around and there's going to be a marketplace that everything comes together on for that provisioning and procurement. Um, they're going to own, you know, perhaps a competitive marketplace in, the, in that model. There's times where I may not want to start my journey on Microsoft. I may not want to start my journey on Salesforce. My solution is more varied than that. And there's no one big vendor in it. You know, when I'm writing the million dollar check, there's not one vendor for 800K. So I'm not really comfortable starting on any of the vendor led marketplaces. I'm going to start in a place where I can build it, especially if I'm a CIO, a CTO, CISO, CDO. I'm going to be probably more apt to start at a technology marketplace that focuses on security, for example, or one that focuses on continuity. I'm not going to go to Salesforce App Exchange to get my continuity. And that's the difference here is that's where they can come out and be a platform and understand that the transaction is only one of those five things we talked about. They can help companies get into those 28 moments. They can help a company like yours keep a customer for life every 30 days, enriching that contract. They can help you know, broker that um, DevOps people and building value on your platform that last mile. They can broker some of these alliances because they know Accenture and everybody. So this is so much that they can be adding outside of that core margin that they take today right at that point of sale. Yeah. And piecing together, like you talk about the seven layers of the solution, they're piecing that together uh, for you. Yeah. Or their technology is piecing it together. Yeah, that's right. Hey, you're a mid-sized clinic. You know, now we've taken trillions of permutations down to here's the seven things you need. And here's the seven things that have worked for these other mid-sized clinics and grown them by triple digits. And that person got a promotion. You know, click here to, you know, click here to add to cart. Excellent. All right. Number two, 72% of U.S. tech workers are considering quitting. These are scary numbers. We're seeing it. You know, it's so hard to keep salespeople. Everyone's moving around quickly. What do you? Yeah, I said a tongue in cheek because, you know, you can imagine that, you know, are 72% of people are going to quit? No. But the fact of the matter is this great resignation is real. And this future of work uh, has forever changed. We now know that about 30% of people now think of work as what they do, not where they go. Very different than our generation. And uh, people in our generation are thinking this way too. Uh, you know, I look, you know, my wife and I, we're never moving. You know, as a channel chief, you know, most grizzled channel chiefs, you know, have moved a half a dozen or a dozen times moving around to headquarters. And now you need a good airport and a good internet connection 
and you can be a very successful channel chief. So, so many roles have changed and 30% of all jobs have changed forever. And if the companies aren't up to speed on that and don't have the employee experience and the HR tech to support all of this and all of us, you know, we're going to choose because there's a lot of opportunity to take our, you know, talents somewhere else. Well, once we have all these low flying satellites giving us, you know, internet everywhere, then we can go be channel chiefs on the sailboat sailing around the world. Yeah. With that work Elon Musk was doing, the first thing I thought about was you is when I, uh, you know, get that catamaran in 10 years and start moving around the world, uh, hopefully circumnavigate. I can think about having internet the same way you have GPS. We'll be telling our grandkids one day that we used to have to run from cell tower to cell tower and go into Starbucks to find Wi-Fi. And they'll be like, what? You know, network isn't ubiquitous. You used to have to go find it. I almost want to get out and sail without it, though, still. You know, I'm going to miss the old days, I know, once we have all that connectivity. I would like clunk into one of those uh, containers that have fallen off those boats off the coast uh, waiting to dock. So uh, I I need all the technology I can get. Hit a windmill in the fog or something. That's true. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So we've been leading up to the number one Jay McBain prediction. Number one, the channel or the ecosystem orchestrator becomes the new trusted advisor. So does that mean we talked about the channel chief becoming the, the, orca- the ecosystem chief? Does the CAM become the ecosystem orchestrator? Is that the new role of the CAM? The job is actually wide open. The, the person that can add the value, you know, the, the job title itself or the company you work for may not be as important as the individual or the, you know, the team that's putting it together. But back through all the numbers that we shared, and I don't want to rehash them all, but, you know, trillions of permutations of how things are going to come together. Thinking about this elongated customer journey, the research shows us today that on average, there's five partners involved in every deal that ends up in a seven layer cake. So we've lived for 40 years in this idea of a single throat to choke, that single trusted advisor. That's now research tells us has blown up in our faces. We may think as a partner, we own that customer from soup to nuts until 65% of SaaS is bought outside of IT. And the head of marketing is spending more than the CIO on technology. And you've never met the head of marketing. And now there's 78% of digital agencies that are in earning those technology dollars. You're not the single throat to choke. You have a lot of value to add to that marketing buyer. You should be invited into the room, but you not, might not be the primary player for that integration or for that long-term management of that. You're not doing the creative or concierge services. You're not adding the layers to the cake. So you know, you've got to compete in a different way as a partner. And when you get through this idea that you're not going to be the single throat to choke, you start to think about orchestration. There's a lot going on in that marketing stack, that seven layer. You know, how do I secure that? How do I back it up? You know, disaster recovery. How do I put in the automation? How do I do the federal government services around it? How do I support the IT department, the CIO, and in, in trying to contain all that shadow IT, which is now two thirds of every dollar? That's the orchestration model. You know, there's not a digital agency or an accountant or others that are going to play this model. There's going to be system integrators that want to play that model because it's very profitable. But anyone that adds value to that client can really play that role. And that's what's interesting here is there's just so many moving parts. And those that use technology the best, because again, most of this will be technology-led automation. But at the end, to, to tie a bow on it, and to make sure all the pieces and parts and that outcome ends up delivering, there's going to be a human element always. I think the CAM is going to become a community manager. You know, if you want to go win mid-sized clinics, I've written long pieces on how to go do that. What they read, where they go, who they follow, 
what are the podcasts they listen to? What are the magazines they read? What are the events they go to? You know, back to that chamber of commerce conversation. That's what the cam needs to do. You're not calling on accounts like you used to, calling them every week, asking about their pipeline. That's the complaint that every cam gets is they're just, you know, forced by their bosses to call the channel every week. The fact is, if I can be engaging in the industry, having the conversation at the watering holes, helping my partner and helping the whole industry, all boats rise by being active and having these conversations, that's where the future cam is in in my mind. Yeah. Well, it's very exciting. You know, you talk about automation, just from a systems perspective, a lot of the PRMs aren't, aren't set up today to track those five partners that are engaged in the opportunity. We're lucky if we can track one correctly. Well, there's an explosion. If you could see over my shoulder, I've got a tech stack with 183 channel software companies. And I get the benefit of seeing 183 roadmaps every year. So I get a sense of what 10,000 vendors are asking these companies to build. And I get to see what private equity or, you know, they've written a billion dollars in private equity into this stack just this year. So I get to see which companies that they're getting full on behind. When I mentioned attribution, when I mentioned data escrow, data sharing, when I mentioned some of these specific automation technologies, I could tell you that there's hundreds of millions of dollars that are coming into these companies week after week to deliver this future decade of the ecosystem. And, you know, in previous decades, where we'll end off is we knew in 1999 when Salesforce got their start, by the end of that decade, they were on their way to what I think is going to be the next trillion dollar valued company. The 10 years ago, there was companies that not only my kids, but I never had recognized 10 years ago, small little companies like Eloqua and Marketo and HubSpot and Pardot and Acton. Well, the first three of those got acquired by Fortune 100 companies. The company that came in fourth place in that decade is currently worth $47 billion on the stock market, and they haven't hit a billion in revenue yet, HubSpot. And they are, guess what? They hired the MarTech Scott Brinker, the the guy that put together that MarTech logo chart, and he's bringing on 8,000 technology companies into HubSpot. He's bringing in 200,000 digital agencies into HubSpot. They're a platform company that are now much, much larger than those top three that got acquired. And so now we're starting a new decade. Who is the HubSpot on this channel tech stack that today you don't recognize, but with a lot of funding and some really interesting, you know, next few years, you know, becomes those $47 billion company by landing in fourth place. It will be interesting to see, Jay. This this is a fascinating time. And it, it sounds like you're having fun. You, you This is your world of all this dynamic change and research and understanding where this is all headed. Uh, somebody pays me every morning to wake up and watch all these moving things. And when, when somebody ends, you know, when somebody announces the end of cookies, you know, some people think about the cookie monster. I start to connect dots and say, oh my goodness, I, I read about this 28 and I read about this and I thought about this. And, you know, I talked to these vendors, I talked to these partners, talked to these, dist- and I actually get paid to just connect dots. So it's like, a, it's a fun place to be. It's fantastic. So I got to ask you, Jay, when you're not connecting dots, you got into cycling this year and with COVID, what was that you did? You like cycled across Canada virtually or something? Well, it's a, being an analyst, I, you know, I got on my bike because I, I couldn't play hockey anymore. My wife had um, heart surgery. So we were one of those COVID families that were pretty locked in. So the only socially distant sport that I could do, I'm not a runner or anything else, is get back on my bike. And uh, so I started going out and running, you know, 20, 30, 40. And then I got up to like 50 miles uh, per trip. And so being an analyst, I put that on a spreadsheet, you know, and started adding up, you know, every week, you know, 50 plus 50 plus 50 plus 50. And then it got to the certain point where it's like, 
you know, it's only, you know, X amount of miles from here to Toronto, from Miami to Toronto. And I started saying, I'm going to go to Toronto to see my daughter virtually because we couldn't travel. And then when I got to Toronto, I said, well, I'm going to turn left. And my dad lives in Calgary. My mom lives in Vancouver. I'm just going to start going across Canada that way. And I hit like 5,000 miles. I got to Calgary on Father's Day. I went and saw my mom, you know, a few a month later, a couple months later. And then, you know, once I got to Vancouver, it's like, I guess I'm taking another left down through Seattle and I'm just going to come home. And so now I'm at this like probably halfway home now. And I've crisscrossed like North America virtually riding up and down the ocean in Florida, but just pounding on miles that, uh, you know, were normally reserved for like pretty serious, like Tour de France type of cyclists. Will you be home for Christmas? No, I'm definitely, if I get through Wichita by Christmas, I think I'll be happy. How many miles will that be, do you think, for the year? Uh, it's going to come up to, well, I counted in kilometers because it sounded better, but I'm probably running, like I, I do 50 miles. I do have young kids and, you know, I have a lot of other interests. So I try to go on one bike ride a week for 50 miles. So if you multiply 50 by 50 weeks, 52 weeks, I'm trying to do 2,500 miles a year. Yeah, that's fantastic. So Outside the channel, I know we talked about you love travel. You had a goal of hitting, I can't remember if it was every country in the world or close to it. Are you guys planning anything yet? I mean, it's it's still such a crazy world for international travel. Uh, we did. So uh, we had an Antarctica trip, which was our final continent. We've been to 85 countries and you know we're trying to hit 100 and then move on from there. The reason for a sailboat is to go hit every country at some point. Most of them are just small little islands in the Pacific. That you got to like knock off uh, or in the Caribbean. But we had an Antarctica trip that was canceled the first year of COVID. Then it was canceled again the second year of COVID. You can only go for two weeks a year to Antarctica. It freezes over for the rest of the year. So we're going to do that next December. But, you know, we have to wait a year. But my wife turns 40 and I turn 50 this year. So I think what we might do is go on a huge African safari. Nice. We've been to Africa a couple of times, but let's go hit four or five countries. Let's go elephants and giraffes and take our kids and kind of Jurassic Park Jeep type of trip and go do that in middle Africa. Very fun. Well, I hope you get to do it, Jay. That would be fantastic. Good stuff. And I know you love to travel as well. So at some point, we've got to get on a, a boat together. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I'm, I'm always dreaming of what's going to be that next sailing adventure. So plenty of opportunities. I just need more time. <laughs> That's right. Don't we all? Yeah, exactly. Jay, thank you so much. This has been really fascinating and fun conversation. I know everyone's going to enjoy it. All right. Thank you so much again for having me. All right. And Merry Christmas. You too. All right. There you go. The top 10 channel predictions for 2022. A lot to think about and plan for as we move to marketplaces, more channel disruption and innovation, and an exciting opportunity to build and optimize our partner ecosystems. And that's really exactly what I'm working on at Beyond Trust. Thanks again to our channel journey sponsor, Allbound. If you are looking for an easier way to manage deal registration, a better way to track partner opportunities, better way to provide your partners easier access to all the sales and marketing materials they need, as well as trainings and certifications, be sure to check them out at allbound.com. For today's show notes, just go to channeljourneys.com forward slash CJ79. You can subscribe while you're there. All right, next episode, I'll be doing an end of year special on lessons learned in 2021. Until then, have an awesome channel journey. A very Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays. Thanks for listening to Channel Journeys. For show notes and other Channel Journey podcasts, visit channeljourneys.com. If you liked today's show, 
please forward it to your channel friends. And be sure to tune in for Rob's next channel adventure.